Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Brother Derek, how are you doing today, sir? Great. I, I'm so glad that now that we're not doing the episodes every week, we have time to do some really important conversations. And this is going to be one of the most important conversations we have all year. We've got a groundbreaking book and some amazing authors to talk to. And I'm so excited to talk about this and maybe sneak in some jokes. We'll see about the jokes part, but uh, you, hear, you did hear Derek right. We are joined by uh, Reverend Dr. Fatima Saleh and Margaret Olson Hemming, the authors of Book of Mormon for the Least of These, Volume 1, and now, as of about a month or two ago, Volume 2. It has just dropped. It covers the books of Mosiah to Alma, whereas the previous volume covered from the book of 1 Nephi to Words of Mormon. So this is a totally new volume, totally new content covering two very important and, uh, you know, I, I guess can, can, can be troubling books in the uh, Book of Mormon. But uh, we're going we're gonna to talk about that uh, a little bit more uh, once we start the conversation. But uh, Margaret, Fatima, welcome. And thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Happy to see y'all's faces too. Likewise, it's been too long and it's uh, seriously such a privilege to be able to talk to you both, especially about this uh, work that uh, I know for, for speaking for myself, I've been waiting pretty much since the end of our last interview to be able to uh, receive this volume. Uh, I really want to thank you guys so much for this volume as it gives me new reasons to love the Book of Mormon and gives me more reason to be proud of uh, our theology and our text and more reason to shove the Book of Mormon in people's faces. Um, <laughs> you really let me know what a wonderful, liberating, uh, justice-oriented, life-giving text this is. And uh, it was, as it was with the first volume, the best thing to happen to my Book of Mormon study. So thank you guys for that first off. Um, <laughs> That said, I do want to kind of ask a question that you guys more or less answer in the preface, but want to give you an opportunity to expound as you see fit. Tell me about what it was like writing this work during the pandemic and all the other stuff that happened during the pandemic. Hmm. Hmm. Margaret, you want to go first on that one? <clears throat> Yeah, so one of the one of the reasons that Fatima and I have decided to to include this this preface in each of the volumes is that we feel like it's important for anyone who is interpreting or exegeting scripture to explain to the audience where their social location is and what um, is happening in their lives at the moment that they are doing that work, because the context of where they are is going to affect how they understand scripture. And, and we don't talk about that enough at church that, um, you know, your, your own background affects how you understand scripture. And even the moment of where you are in your life is going to affect how you understand scripture. And so we felt like it's not just enough to, you know, give a paragraph of our, um, our educational background or our little biographies in the, on the, the back cover. Um, we needed to say this particularly was the moment in our lives when we did this work. And that this, this is how we understood God at this moment. 
this moment where we had our children across the table from us doing virtual learning, where we were, you know, watching and participating in the, the Black Lives Matter um, movement uh, exploding uh, in 2020 and uh, the following years when we're watching the election and the insurrection of uh, January 2021. Um, you know, these, these local and global events deeply affected us and deeply affected how we read these verses. So we felt like it's only a fair, fair to the reader to explain to them um, where we are, particularly when we did this work. And it was really hard. <laughs> it's really hard. Um, you know, Fatima and I have seven kids between us and we were at home with them during this time. And, uh, you know, children have really, all of us have really struggled in the past couple of years um, but kids trying to do virtual learning at home is really um, challenging. And so we saw that um, as part of the process and all of these events as um, sort of crucial to uh, the interpretive process and not just tangential to it. Yeah. I would have to totally, I mean, of course that was our situation. I, I did, I thought it was important for me to say at the beginning that I was so disillusioned. I don't know why I said that past tense, um, but, um, and heartbroken by this country in a million different ways. And so I felt like I wrote, I exegeted, or I looked at the scripture from a point of deep heartbreak. And um, and disappointment, and a, a also a deep desire for change, and politically all of it, and watching it all happen. And I really, when I say that Margaret was the reason this book is written, I I, I have to just underscore that I wanted to leave it. I was leaving much of my work altogether that had to do with race and around race because I just felt like what in the world. Um, and I didn't know who I was going to, who we were talking to anymore, or even if I wanted to talk anymore about liberation outside of those who I felt like were really close to me and could, you know, could really get it. Um, so I think that that was where I was at. And so to understand that some of this text is really the governments, the, the people are from the mind, at least from a black woman of, um, I'm looking at this text in my with my own cries. I don't know if we can hear you, James. Sorry about that. Thank you both for sharing that. I think it's, you know, as you said, Margaret, I think it's very important for uh, people to understand the kind of 
environment and circumstances surrounding the writing of this work. And, you know, I, I mean, my immediate curiosity when I finally got the volume in my hands was to wonder, you know, how is that going to influence what I'm about to read? And, you know, a lot of Alma and like Alma, especially, I guess, is about political turmoil, about a literal, a literal insurrection takes place in uh, the book of Alma. And there are cries against the government uh, for their neglect of their people. So I, I, I don't know if that particular situation made this volume feel extra prophetic to me. Um, but it, it, it kind of brings me to the next thing I want to ask you guys about something that I think you also highlight in your uh, introduction. Um, you write something, several things, but you write this one thing in particular, that's uh, pretty prophetic and also, uh, haunting. And I say haunting because I read one sentence and then my immediate thought ended up being the next sentence. It reads like a, uh, warning and sure enough, you name the Book of Mormon as a warning. Let me just pull this up real quick so uh, the listeners have some context here. This is, uh, again, in the, uh, in the introduction of the book. So the sentence you guys write is, the tragedy of the Book of Mormon is that ultimately the people choose their own interests over beloved community. And then the next sentence that you write, which was the thought that I had, this may also be the tragedy of our modern time. So, um, and then sure enough, you name by the time you, it like those sentences feel like a warning. And sure enough, by the time you get to the end of your introduction, you name the Book of Mormon as a warning. Can you talk a little bit more about the Book of Mormon as a, uh, as a warning? I think to be um, perfectly um, transparent with this, Margaret wrote the introduction. So Margaret, yeah, she gets to speak to it. Um, it was lovely. Thank you. Although these are ideas that we formed together, so um, I can't take credit for it. I, um, I think one of the most important, um, one of the most important sort of uh, changes of, of frame that we have to use for the way that, that Fatima and I are reading the Book of Mormon is instead of using the Nephites as a people to emulate, we are using them as a people who, um, as, as like you said, sort of a, a warning for our time. Um, that both they and the Lamanites were societies um, who uh, sort of ultimately chose violence over connection and um, and that they sort of turned away, chose to turn away from from one another. Um, so, yeah, and I, I think it's the tragedy of our modern time. Um, it could also be the story of, of humanity, right? So this is why the Book of Mormon could, could 
be used or is I think can be can be um, so useful or or touch people in so many different periods of time. Um, it makes me think, you know, you mentioned reading it and thinking about the January 6th insurrection, which was the period when we were particularly writing those chapters in Alma. When our editor was reading through it, she was, it was particularly during the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. And she was sending me these notes and saying like, it's really extraordinary. Like, I can't believe the coincidence that I'm writing, you know, reading this during this particular moment during the invasion of Ukraine. And I thought, it's not coincidental. It's just that humanity repeats itself over and over and over again. It's not that it's, it's not that it's just this one period of time. It's just that we keep doing it, um, you know, throughout the world and throughout history. Um, and here we have, I mean, it's, it, it is a great mythological story in that sense that it can be seen in sort of the the human history over and over and over again and we can see sort of that archetype um repeated in our own stories makes a lot of sense thank you for expounding on that some more because uh I, yeah i was really curious about that um, oh, well, I have a question. And so I have to preface my question by talking about the way the Book of Mormon is normally presented. And I'm coming at this as a convert, so I might be missing large pieces of this. But to my sense, when I hear the, the Book of Mormon talked about in our conference talks or our correlated manuals, it's essentially one of two things. Number one, it's, oh, here's this magic object that is a gotcha that proves the, the restoration is real and Joseph was a prophet and everything else falls like dominoes. If you know the Book of Mormon is true, then all this other stuff is true. So it's used like this magic ritual object rather than as a message. And you are restoring, ironically, we talk about restoration, you're restoring the Book of Mormon as a message to our day. And I find that profound. And the second way that I see the Book of Mormon used is to reinforce the daily spiritual practices of our culture like oh take this little piece of the book of mormon it tells you about how to pray or how to pay tithing or how to be obedient to the prophet or some other thing that just reinforces the status quo in our church and it is not a message for transformation or change as it's been used in our correlated materials so tell me why you think that we don't read the book of mormon as a powerful message in our culture the way that you do I, I think that that's a really good question. And um, I think a couple of things happen. I think um, Latter-day Saints, while, and I think that the holiday is coming up soon, but while moving across the country to find refuge, somewhere along the line in those articles of faith is the obedience to government and, and just playing right along with what, who's in power. So even in the articles of faith, there's this adherence to, to government and structure, right? And 
I think even in them finding refuge outside of that and then developing, they really want to stay within the confines of the structure of society. Whereas you have many black churches or the root of some black churches who were rooted in like over and against <laughs> structure and even against Christianity as been told through a white lens. So you're getting on those slave plantations, a whole nother Christianity erupting at the same time that the master's house and are, 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 are moving in a different Christianity. And I think Latter-day Saints don't necessarily move in liberation. They move in, how do we support what is? Or um, sometimes I think that maybe they, they may go up against things um, government-wise, but that's not how they move in text. And so, and it takes kind of a mind to be like, okay, how is this, how is the text, what is the text calling me to? And how is it calling me to justice? How is it calling me to move in ways that nudge the world and move the ark towards justice? And I don't think we read that or we get that as much um, in our studies in seminary, which I went to institute, which I finished, that wasn't necessarily the, the primary lens. Um, so I am coming it from it, a womanist lens, which is black women and how they move in it. And, and so for me, liberation and how the text is moving in it is really important. And I think you got a lot of white dudes reading scripture and telling you how to read scripture. Not that that's all bad, but you got white dudes in power telling you how to read text. And then they're stamping and solidifying what is can be your curriculum. Um, and when you don't have voices that are moving in a different narration of God and who God is in their space, which is not white male, then I don't think you can actually harness or even begin to understand how the text can move in a different social location. And what it would mean when I read the text versus when you read it, Derek, in your body, in your experience, and Margaret and her and her experience, and James and his, and, and that the absence of those voices and it being almost solidly white male, and not even that, a certain age group of white male that has allowed the reading of the text to only show forth in certain ways, we feel that dearth. We feel the paucity of the others' voices that, could, that definitely need to be heard when reading this text. You got anything to add, Margaret? No, I think that's perfect. Thanks, Fatima. Yes, thank you, Fatima. That was, that was beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. And speaking Amazing. of uh, the uh, paucity of uh, what is... Uh, you know, in or not in the text. Um, something I appreciate about both volumes uh, so far is the challenge of status quo readings and uh, expansions of texts that we are tempted to uh, brush over. Uh, you know, I have my favorites, um, but I was wondering if y'all got any particular challenges to the status quo or expansions of our given text that were particularly meaningful to you as you went over this particular volume?
You want to go first, Fatima? I think we, first of all, Margaret had us beautifully move with scholars and certain folk to read the book, like Book of Mormon scholars. And um, it was lovely that they were moving in and it was really quite helpful and in really big ways. In other ways, I could see how I'm like, oh, my friend, no, like, how are you getting that, you know? And so it was really kind of this conversation we're having with, um, mostly it was white male scholars, Book of Mormon scholars, because they tend to be that. Um, And so in the conversation of moving and editing and looking at the book, it was really phenomenal and wonderful insight that we desperately needed in many ways. And in other ways, I saw this, this disparity on how we were seeing it. And then at one point, I'm gonna be very honest, Margaret and I went back and forth on certain things. Like, should we say that scholars disagree with us? And <laughs> they don't necessarily see that our way of thinking um, is, not, is not common among the, the um the Book of Mormon scholars. And my mom and all her beauty, she goes, why, why would you even want to name them? Like, okay, but you're writing your own book. Why do they need to be named in that? And that was a really interesting thing for my mom to kind of enter in this conversation is we're like, do you even want to name people who don't think like you do right now? I mean, they're out there. They've always been out there. Your, your mission is to really name what hasn't been talked about. And so, but literally, I think working with, and Margaret far more is into the scholars. Like she'll say, well, so-and-so said this and so, and I looked up this work and I saw so-and-so's work and I'm like, okay. And like I had an aversion. I really wanted to be like, I don't care what they say. (laughs) And Margaret's like, well, in many ways it's supporting this and blah, blah, blah. I wish you were there for the talks Margaret and I had on this because I was like, give zero almost of what they were saying about the work but and in fact I was really grateful that one in particular walked beside us so beautifully but this was a definite conversation how do we engage and did we want to engage and I have to be grateful to Margaret for engaging and whatever I'm going to say I didn't read any other material outside of the material given by black and brown folks on text I, I refuse in many ways to read what white words were and um, that was intentional I read a lot of what white words were, and I did not want it to infiltrate my mind about the ways I want to see the text. Yes, thank you for sharing that. The white gaze can be a heck of a drug when it comes to uh, doing this work that y'all be doing. And Yeah, uh, and I'm one of the white gays. but uh anyway um what what about you margaret yeah so the the big one for me and it's and it's huge in this section of scripture is the war chapters right there's so much violence and and war in in mosiah and particularly in alma and as someone who in my previous readings of the book of mormon I had spent a lot of time reading the first five chapters of Mosiah 
and skipping over the second half of Alma <laughs> because I, I, you know, these long descriptions of battles and, you know, descriptions of armor and, you know, the battlefield and how many people were killed. I, I struggled with what, what was meaningful in that. And I think the previous, a lot of the previous scholarship um, of the Book of Mormon that was about, you know, well, this is the, these are the drawings of what the armor would have looked like. And this is, you know, the geographical location of this battle and sort of the factual way of laying out the, the battles um, kind of reinforced to me that this was not for me. And, and the way Fatima approached it, that I thought really broke open that section of scripture into just a, a spiritual feast was to say, how are these writers wrestling with God at this dark, hard moment in their lives? And you can see Captain Rona doing it. You can see Alma doing it. You can see, um, you can see these people doing it and saying, "God, where are you? We're we're seeing our people dying. We're seeing them starve to death. We're out here, you know, in the wilderness. We're on the edge of of battle, and we don't know why this is happening to us. Do you hate us? Did we do something wrong? What are we cursed?" Do we need to repent? Like, why is this happening to us? And I think, and they're, you know, they're, they're suffering these traumatic things and they're trying to make meaning from it. And for me, taking time to sit with that and sit with them in their pain and not just skip over it and say, I don't get it. I don't like this. I don't want to spend time with it anymore, but just sit with them and say, the world is a violent, scary place. And I get that they were struggling with it too. Just like we are struggling now. We open the newspaper. It's sad. It's scary. That's where I could really connect with it and, and, and get a spiritual bounty from it. Thank you for sharing. So, um, sorry, Derek, did you have any, uh, follow-ups to uh yeah i it's i don't know how follow up this is but i was thinking about missionary work because there's a profound message in the book of mormon and work like yours can reach what our world needs to hear right now because our world is desperate for liberating and empowering messages especially on issues of race and gender and social justice and war and conflict and power dynamics all of these things and I'm thinking about how the message of the early church in the 1830s and 40s was all about captivating and tapping into this powerful vision of Zionistic utopianism, like the world could be different. We could structure our church differently. We could take care of our poor. We could um, resist the way that the world does things. And so I'm curious as to what extent you were thinking about non-members or people learning about the church or people of other faiths who just want to benefit spiritually from another tradition, how much of that was on your mind um, versus uh, sort of reaching the needs of members of the church? 
I don't think I'm, it was on my mind as much. I hate to say I was mostly writing to, uh, you know, I was. Um, Margaret, of course, can speak for herself, mostly writing to those who believed the book or wanted to move in the book in a different way. Yeah, for sure. It's it's written towards people who have read the Book of Mormon and um you know, you can you can read the book uh without having read the Book of Mormon and in fact my my spouse's coworker recently read it and uh told me, you know, he really enjoyed it. Um he's never read the Book of Mormon, but he thought it was great. Um, so uh, that was really interesting to, to hear. Um, and I've also had um, people in my investigators who are coming to my ward, who other, um, other members of my ward have given them copies of the book and they have read it. <laughs> So they're reading the Book of Mormon for the first time and reading this book alongside it as they read the Book of Mormon for the first time. So it's been interesting to have those conversations as they, um, you know, they're very different conversations than people who um, know the Book of Mormon well. Um, but yeah, this was, it's definitely a book that was written towards um Towards members of the yeah, and that's totally fair. That's not a critique at all. Obviously, every um, author makes choices, and, and that's a, an absolutely fair choice to make. Part of what I'm thinking is when I have uh, my liberal and progressive non-member friends, they're like, oh, tell me about the Book of Mormon. Your work is the first thing that I recommend. I say, get this. Mm -hmm. It will tell you the power of the Book of Mormon. Don't read those conference talks. Don't read all that other stuff. Don't read how straight white men have interpreted this book for 150 years because that's not the real power of this book. Like, I don't want them to read any of that other stuff. It because, really isn't. <laughs> because that, that other stuff isn't really captivating for for non for progressive non-members with a moral heart, right? I think there's something that you've tapped into that we don't have enough of. I they should we should like this book should be required reading for every missionary who's going out there and preaching the Book of Mormon. Like, absolutely. No questions, because they're going to encounter people for whom this stuff is relevant. And the Book of Mormon, of course, teaches like in the scriptures unto yourself. And this is exactly what you do. And by analogy, empowering others to do uh, similar things. So I'm just so glad that this work is out there. It needs to be out there more. Um, yeah. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And also what Margaret said, just like, I know it wasn't necessarily made with investigators in mind, but it just gave me an idea. Like one of like my hairstylist just came to church for the first time a couple of weeks ago. And it just occurred to me that when the missionaries handed her the Book of Mormon, I should also give her, you know, a copy of volume one and volume two, just so for one thing, she has a study companion that is not written in King James English, but also the fact that she has something that is going to be most likely to speak to her because like as a black woman in Harlem, I'm not going to show her an institute manual first. Like, that's not what I want to do. I'm not going to show her like a conference talk or the various things that whoever Book of Mormon Central or whatever, like no shade to them. But like, I've read that story already. And 
we need something. And, you know, especially the people in this community, they need something different. They need something better to be frank. So, you know, that, that was an idea that occurred, but just hearing you say that Margaret, just like that reaffirms, this is something that I need to do for uh, my, for my friends down here, for, for all my friends, really. And uh, like I said, at the beginning, this has given me a reason to want to further introduce people to the book of Mormon. Cause y'all just be mining these jewels, but also like, sometimes you'll just like the way y'all write, be writing sometimes just makes me be like, that was in there this entire time. And you know, something that Derek frequently says on the show is it's in the scriptures. And, you know, this isn't even a reach. This is just here. <laughs> and it's been there the entire time. Yeah. And uh, that brings me to uh, another question that I have. And this is going to reference, again, something directly in the text here. Like last volume and uh, something that I've appreciated greatly about the work that y'all did with these volumes was the feeling that I was reading solutions to problems we're experiencing institutionally as a church. Uh, let, let, let me just uh, read a quick example here that I, I, I really enjoyed in, um, in uh, your Mosiah commentary. This is, I think, the Mosiah 27 verse 35 commentary. And this is a reference to uh, the sons of Mosiah. I'm just going to read this here. It says, quote, before the sons of Mosiah leave, they travel around Zarahemla to repair the damage they've done. The text emphasizes the energy they put into this effort, quoting the Book of Mormon now, zealously striving to repair all the injuries which they had done, including confessing and replacing old narratives with new ones. Social justice, particularly within the church, sometimes looks like zealously repairing the wrongs of the past. It is the church collectively asking, what have we done to harm other people? And once we become cognizant of that harm, then we work to mend it. Disciples cannot disregard the injuries they may have caused, even unintentional harms. So, close quote. I just got to ask, you, you, you didn't name it explicitly that this is about the church, but you did indicate the value both in, in both introductions of both volumes, the type of value that this interpretation can have on people. So I just have to ask directly, did you write with the intent to make commentary on the institution or did you simply see an opportunity to hold a mirror to us and take it? I, I think um, part of it and Margaret, I don't know, Margaret too, with writing it. I, I was talking to church as a broad structure. <laughs> I'm like, y'all, y'all need to do better. Like I was just really frustrated. And because I'm working ecumenically in different um, denominations, I can see some of the same prevailing ailments um, that seem to not, yeah, to not want to be accountable to how the church can spiritually abuse his folks. Um, and that it, it too, the church in and of itself should and frequently repent and interrogate how it's been moving with God's people and God's children. So um, I think I was writing that lowercase, for me, it was lowercase c and to talk, but I, but I was pretty, when I was thinking about it and Margaret can speak when she was thinking, I was pretty intent. I was honing in. I was asking the church to do better. I really was. And um, 
in ways that folk needed them to do better and to say they were sorry and make amends. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with Fatima in the sense that uh, I think we we're writing at the church as lowercase c in the sense of, you know, um, churches. But if the, if the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints sees itself in those words, then there may be good reason for that. We're actually hoping they do see themselves, to be honest. <laughs> there it is. I'm actually hoping yeah. they, they do see themselves. And... Yeah, very clearly. Mm. It was very clear to me, just well, <laughs> just by the way. Like as soon as I read that, I had to put the book down and just be like, like it was the it wasn't even the first time that y'all did this in the book, but I was just like, they coming for somebody's throat. And uh, <laughs> you know. And you know, this is something longer. that reminds me of I had a Jewish friend who told me one time. After reading the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, and there's just a, a lot of amazing, powerful, eternal truths in, in there. And my Jewish friend said, wow, this is so amazing. Someone should make a religion based on Jesus's teaching in the sermons on in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm like, I felt that <laughs> I felt convicted by that, like the, we as Christians, not just Latter-day Saints, but we as global Christians have not really lived up to what a religion built on Jesus's teachings would have been, mm -hmm. right? We've typically been a religion, more a religion about a Jesus character rather than the religion of Jesus that Jesus taught. And, and that's why I think we need a restoration. We always need restoration. Every generation, every week, every year, every day, we should wake up to a new sense of God's restoring action in the church. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I want to connect this with a question I had about to what extent did you, and maybe if I had read, read this volume, I, I would know, but to what extent did you run up against the limitations of the text itself? Because the text was written from a particular social and economic and class and gender location. And that limits the scope and coverage of what, what goes on. And part of my, one of my, uh, feelings is that we don't have enough stories of women. Um, we have very few named women characters in the Book of Mormon. We have more unnamed women's uh, stories, but those don't get emphasized as much, except when it's to serve the purpose of, of men's interests. And that's actually something I've noticed about the Book of Mormon. The women are supporting characters in the Book of Mormon. They're always supporting some man's story. And I think that's wrong. That's offensive to the teaching of the book itself that all are alike unto God, male and female. Why not actually live that out and live up to that? So to what extent did you run up against, oh, we're only seeing um, the Nephite perspective and not the Lamanite. We're only seeing the male perspective and not the women's perspective. We're only, you know, seeing the military. Like, how did you, how did you deal with that? Did you confront that head on? Did you try to reconstruct what would have been these voices? Did you read through a hermeneutic of suspicion, reading it against the grain to what they would have been reacting to, to recover? Like, how did you deal with some of these things? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. So, so for the women thing, this is something that we, we stop at every time there was a hint of women's stories 
in the books and and we we try without without speculating too much we try to reconstruct those stories as much as we can so a couple of examples we spend some time with isabel's story um Isabel gets, you know, maybe two verses in, in Alma and she's, um, you know, completely dismissed in our, the way, you know, in mainstream uh, sort of Mormon culture, we discuss her story. She's dismissed as, you know, the harlot who, uh, you know, is just a bad person. Uh, So we spent some time on her and sort of telling her story as much as we could with very little to go on and discuss the problems of why, you know, the issue of having very little to go on and, and the problem of what Alma says about her. And um, we also spent a lot of time with the daughters of Limhi and the Lamanite daughters and um, the language that is used with the daughters of Limhi and how even the text is unwilling to confront what happened to those young women. And here you have this story where the people of Limhi are set up as the better people, right? They are the people who stayed, these are the men who stayed with their families instead of running off with the priests of Noah and King Noah. They they didn't desert their families, right? But when the Lamanites come for them, what do they do? They offer up their daughters. And what the text says is that the, the soldiers, the Lamanite soldiers are so charmed by the beauty of their daughters that they, I don't have the Book of Mormon from me, but they, they're so charmed that they stop um, pursuing them and they carry them back to the city. And what Fatim and I say is, this is rape. These men offer up their daughters and and these women are raped. And we got some pushback from that, about that from readers, um, from some male readers who said, can you read that much into this text? Can you read that much in and saying these daughters, you know, the text doesn't say that. And we were like, yes, (laughs) we can read that into this. If you are a woman in war, this is what happens to you. And just because the text is unwilling to confront what happened to these daughters and what these men did to their daughters and what they were willing to sacrifice for their own safety, we are still going to talk about it. It was a powerful part for us. And then to know that the Lamanite daughters, which is what I was focusing on, were just having a moment to themselves, a moment of safety and joy and celebration for themselves. And here come these raggedy old King Noah's priests and there's a mass rape of these women. And, and this is all in the same sort of, like, I'm like, so there was no good, like between they, the Nephites were wilding out and you got both the Nephite daughters and the Lamanite daughters at the hands of men, Nephite men, who who rape and 
moving in women and women's bodies and taking women and giving women up and taking which that is like to me we have never really kind of discussed and like what is this like that these women's bodies are just characters to be moved and played in war and um i think yeah i'm like one day i want to preach about lamanite women's spaces or women and their spaces of joy and where they can come together and be and how that is violated. After, after the, after this happens and the priests come back to the community, the men have this almost ritualistic regathering where the, the priests talk about how they murdered um, the men who went with the priests and King Noah, they talk about how they killed King Noah and they come back to the people of Limhi and they're like, you know, we're real sorry that we deserted you guys. We killed King Noah. We want to be back and part of the community. And the men have this kind of ritual experience where they talk about like, this is what we went through. This is what we went through. And it talks about how they rejoice that they're like, they all survived and there is no confronting of what happened to the women in this experience. And I just think this is like such a tragedy about this text is that the women's experience is not only untold, but like, like deeply shoved under and, and the violence that they have experienced so that they, these men can survive is like buried under these layers. And even while they're telling each other what happened, they're burying under the women's stories. Yeah, I mean, that's why I wish we had more, more, I, more about like the women's side. Like what did the, the Lamanite women think of the wars? What did the Nephite women think of the wars? Because what we have is told through the lens of men. I wish we had their direct words on this because who knows, maybe these wars were done for the elite male's interests. And it wasn't actually in the best interests of the people because I can imagine, and we can't reconstruct this or assume, but I can imagine that the women on both sides of the war, maybe they didn't want the war. They didn't, I don't know if they had anything to gain from the war. Um, and this might be too much of a stretch, but I'm often reminded of, uh, the comedy Lysistrata by the, the poet Aristophanes. So it was written by a man. But what's interesting is you've got the middle of the Peloponnesian War, which Aristophanes was opposed to. And he writes this comedy about how the women of Athens and the women of Sparta who were fighting, whose men were fighting each other. Let me put it that way. The men were fighting each other. The women on both sides are like, this war is dumb. It's like men doing their thing and this war is completely unnecessary. So the women on both sides decide to um, not have sex with their husbands until the war is over. And guess what? The war is over real fast. Right. I'm like, now this is obviously a caricature and a comedy of, of what uh, women may have been thinking, but I'm wondering, like, I wish we had a record, right? Because keeping records is a sacred obligation. We see that throughout the Book of Mormon. Who kept the records of the women? Did they keep their own records and then they got abridged away? Like, I don't know. 
But what that does as a warning for today is to say, we've got to keep the records of the women today. We've got to let women tell their stories and we've got to keep those and preserve them because otherwise we will have the same thing happening over and over. So thank you again for showing us how even the Book of Mormon itself is a warning of what happens if you don't preserve all the stories of the people. And I do say in the words of Monica Coleman, who's a womanist theologian, um, saying that women in particular, write your stories, write your stories with God, because that in itself is theology, just whose stories we're choosing and journeys that we're choosing to acknowledge. But I, I couldn't underscore that even more. Um, and I do want to say that we used a lot of Book of Mormon imagination in, in school. Um, it was called a biblical imagination, but we used a lot of it, um, Book of Mormon imagination to construct and move in the stories that were not being told. And we do suffer. And of course, the, the beautiful, and I wish her name is escaping me, the danger of a single story. Um, and so we are trying to move and give to have the imagination of what those stories look like. And that's one thing I like. About the experiences of women anciently and today to reconstruct what would have, what likely would have been the woman's name or the woman's story or the, or any of these other details that don't get uh, recorded in the Bible as thoroughly. Yeah. You guys actually do talk about this a little bit in, uh, you know, in your volume about the importance and the sacredness of storytelling. And uh, this is something that I'm just barely learning about this year in, um, you know, in seminary. And uh, not coincidentally, I was learning about it from the, uh, uh, the teaching fellow who is a black woman about the importance of storytelling. So, um, you know, I just love that that element is just something that has come up organically here, but also something that you guys point to in the text as something that is both sacred and important to our theology and to our, um, well, yeah, you just, one thing that you talk about is how the Book of Mormon teaches us about the sacredness of uh, storytelling. So I just wanted to highlight that uh, while we're talking about storytelling. So I want to encourage folk when you're reading to not gloss over those, to, to, to imagine and have conversations about that. Like um, if you're in a group or you, you know, even in gospel doctrine, like, wait, we passed over this verse, these verses, what do we think is happening? Um, what, what was those daughters have must've felt like being given up by their fathers? Like, I want us to be able to engage the hard parts of text in ways that, that ask us to see and move um, in storytelling that that moves us towards justice and hearing the marginalized and the vulnerable. Can we talk a little bit more about that? Actually, how would you like to see your uh, your volume used? Um, you know, let's focus for a moment just on uh, you know the general the church institution, as it were. Uh, in addition to making sure that people don't pass over these. Uh, verses that we are prone to gloss over in gospel doctrine or Sunday school, whatever it is, how would you like people to be using your volume? I, I would hope, and Margaret, I think has hopes. I know she has hopes as well. So, but my hope is that 
um, that it's another lens and um, that I hope that empowers folk to read the scriptures with so much, um, with a degree of suspicion and um, an inquiry and curiosity, and also to not shy away from hard questions about God, about community, about how we're learning this, like to not let yourself, um, I hope it just, it's not the end. It's, I was hoping that this would be just an appetizer. It would just be an opening to showing maybe different ways you can read a holy text. And that's what I would want. I would want it to empower folks, especially the marginalized in the church to read this text as if it's its own and it's your own and how God is moving and speaking to you in it. And your story is wrapped up and bound in the ancestors and in folks who have loved a God that can be deeply hard to follow sometimes. And also to be part of a people that you think have lost their God-given sense. Um, and what it's like to be in wars, to be in governments, to be neighbors, and how the text is speaking into all of that. Yeah, I can only say amen to that. I have another question about the, the use of your book, because I imagine like the, the power and brilliance of this book is going to shine through to so many people and people are going to start using it in their wards or in their, in their uh, sacrament meeting talks or in their classes. And there's going to be some bishops or stake presidents who might feel threatened or challenged and say like, why, why is this being taught in my ward? And this isn't approved by the church It's not written by the church. So how would you address this, uh, this fear or this potential? Cause I can imagine some wards, they're going to love this and others are just immediately going to be threatened by anything that's different, even though what you're saying is justified by the text itself. And you're drawing out what's, what's implicit in the text. So how would you uh, sort of, or do you feel a responsibility to head off that objection? Maybe you don't. Um, I guess it wouldn't surprise me if that were to happen, but I guess my question would be, why would this be different from other books that are brought in for, you know, to supplement um, lessons. I've, I feel like I've seen that happen in my whole life for, for Sunday school. Um, this is a, a book that is based on Book of Mormon text. And uh, Fatima and I are both uh, faithful women. So <laughs> um, I'm not sure why this would be more threatening than anything else. And yet I don't expect it to be wholly received, probably because we're talking two women are, are releasing it and it is asking for a different take on the Book of Mormon. My, you know, and I've had people tell me they've used it in their talks 
and it brought it up in gospel doctrine. And I almost shudder every time I'm like, are you okay? Um, and I feel like this deep sense of protection, like use it sparingly. Um, and um, and I don't know why I'm just like super protective of anyone who's like moving in that. And I do say that most of them have had wonderful reception. So I'm more timid and more like scared for them than they are for themselves. But I also want to say that I do want to say that we get to pick and choose when we speak and if we have enough energy and fortitude and strength to do it that day, if we want to go and challenge the systems and that I hope that whoever reads this book can decide parts of it, reach them in ways that are powerful, that we bless them, that they know just when to use it, when and have the strength and courage to do the things that they feel will bring them wholeness and closer to God in and moving in community with each other. I had a wonderful theology professor who used to say, you could read holy text by yourself, but it was also meant mostly and greatly to be read together. Um, and that, so have your personal study, but together we move in this text. And so I would hope that any sort of harm that comes or rejection, I pray it's limited and that those who experience it will still, will be buffered and strengthened. I also want to add to that, that the people who I found have been uh, a little wary of the book, once they've picked it up and actually have read it, have loved it. And I think that is part, a, a big part of that is because Fatima is someone who exudes love and compassion for others. And I think that comes out in every part of her ideas and her language. I mean, anyone who has listened to her in this podcast must pick up on that. Um, I had an experience just a, a little while ago, six months ago or so, where an older gentleman in my ward came up to me and, you know, was not someone who I know very well and um he came up and he said I've been just like very stern and tall and he was like you know came up while I was sitting in the pew so he's kind of towering over me and he said I've been reading your book and I was like okay <laughs> like I don't know where this is going and he said I and then I have one question for you I said okay he said when is volume two coming out and what can I do to help make it happen? And uh, it was so, it was just such an incredible experience to me that, um, you know, this man who like, I, I don't know him and I don't think it would normally um, be something that he would think to pick up but he did pick it up and I think it has, has really changed things for him. And he told me he's reading volume two and he loves it even more. So um, I think there are a lot of stories like that out there. I gave it to the missionaries when they came over for dinner. <laughs> it's just, it was so weird. <laughs> hey, y'all, is why you're teaching this in Durham. Um, and black brown country, I'd just like you to, you know, maybe you'd want to have this book to walk alongside your Book of Mormon. So when people are reading it, you can move it actually in a liberation lens for folk 
And they're like, oh, you're handing us a book? And I'm like, yeah, that's <laughs> awkward, but feel free if you're not going to use it to hand it back, you know, if it's not, you know, what you're th- looking for and need at this time. But so I, I'm, I, I hope, I think Margaret and I wrote this and I want to say this, I know we're coming to the end, but this was a love project. It really was. Um, it was, it, it, we carved out time at a, when time and our emotional energy was hard to come by. Um, and it was because this book for me is magic. It is beautiful. And I remember so many times I taught gospel doctrine and I'm like, y'all, we're not even tapping on the, on the, 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 the majestic nature of this book. We're not even beginning to unfold all it holds to speak into a God who loves us. Um, and so this for me is also, and for us, I, I can say as friends and good friends who've developed almost a sisterhood as we wrote this together, um, that this is a gift from us through a really hard time in the world. And we would hope that it breaches some part of us to recognize that so many folk need the talk and the walk of freedom. And that we believe in a God who's just wild enough to believe in all of us being free and wholly loved. And I mean that, wholly loved in every way we show up, trans, queer, black, brown, white, able-bodied and disabled, that there's a God that wants us to be whole in ways of knowing that God loves us. Amen. Um, Amen. Thank you so much for uh, sharing that. That's that's so beautiful. And it really ties well to how I wanted to end today's conversation, which is the purpose, uh, at least in part of you guys uh, doing this work, was a, a concept that you brought up several times throughout the work, which was that of creating a beloved community, uh, a reference to, uh, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. Um, but uh, I I just wanted to testify that, uh, you know, what you said, Fatima, is true and what you said, Margaret, about the radiation of love coming from the text and, you know, coming from you guys just now. It's a it's a very real thing. I, I get the sense very strongly that as you guys that as I've read these words, uh, this is a real and much needed effort to create this beloved community. And uh, that's what it's about at the end of the day or is just making sure that we are moving towards creating this, this, what we occasionally call Zion, this heaven on earth, uh, not just for the people who this has worked for, for 150 plus years, but for, but for all of us, as you, as you said, Dr. Fatima, uh, you know, black, white, bond free, male, female, mm. uh, all genders, all abilities, all colors, just, I, I love that this work feels and I know it is uh, moving in that direction. So if I can add a witness to what you guys have said about the intention and about what this book is doing, I just uh, want to add that I, I know that it is to that end. And uh, sincerely, thank you both for helping us create beloved community, um, you know, among the saints and uh, throughout this world. So thank you both again for uh, joining us today and for uh, this work and for sharing 
what I'm sure was a difficult piece of yourselves to share during, uh, during this particular time. Thanks so much for having us, both of you. Thank you. Yes, thank you so much. And of course, there's going to be volume three, right? I hope. <laughs> yes, that's the plan. <laughs> yes, no pressure. I mean, a little bit of pressure, but no pressure. Yes, indeed. And uh, would you guys mind sharing with people uh, where people can uh, find the volume? Yes, you can order it at your local bookstore um, or you can get it at Barnes and Noble or Amazon. Once again, this is a Book of Mormon for the least of these. This is volume two covering Mosiah and Alma. Uh, with, and this has uh, been a conversation with the authors, Dr. Fatima Saleh and Margaret Olson Hemming. Thank you guys again for joining us. Thank you.